Hello, my name is Andrew Gomison, and it is my privilege to welcome you to the Speaking For Him podcast. You know, as I open this show, I want to say thank you to everyone who has supported and listened through the years. We are nine weeks away from celebrating 10 years exactly on the Speaking For Him podcast. It's very exciting to me that the calendar lines up, that the day I will be posting our 10-year anniversary show will be 10 years to the day that I posted the very first episode back on October 12, 2012. So on October 12, 2022, we will be celebrating 10 years here on the podcast. My original co-host, Adam McNutt, will be with us in some form. Not sure if he'll be live in studio with me or if he'll be on Zoom, but he will be here to celebrate with us. I'm excited about that. I'm excited about the 10 years of friendship that resulted in large part from the podcast. I mean, we became friends before that, but things were really cemented by the podcast because working together on a venture like that just draws you together. So I'm super excited about that. Be listening at the very end of the show when I will share with you a clip from the very first year of the podcast. This is something that I will be doing for the nine weeks leading up to our 10-year anniversary show is just giving you some highlights of what these past 10 years was like. And believe me, it's difficult. There's a lot of shows to sift through, and so you may have a favorite that I do not mention, but don't let that happen. You actually have an opportunity to have a say. If you can think of a particular highlight of the Speaking For Him podcast that you would like us to share during this time, please let me know and I may be able to pull it for a future episode. Even better would be a voicemail from you telling you why you appreciated that episode. So just keep those things in mind and those audio clips will actually roll after the closing of the show as just a special little Easter egg. So make sure that you keep your ears tuned for that. And don't stop the podcast too soon. All right, well, today I am talking on the show about another unique aspect of Christianity. And I'm really enjoying doing this series because I think that it gives me a renewed excitement for this journey that we call the Christian life. And that's really what the Speaking for Him podcast is all about. And so... Every time I get to share one of these, it just makes me very happy and joyful. And so I hope this one will fill you with joy and hope as well. This week's topic is a fixed moral standard. And I think it's so important for us to realize that one of the strongest tenets of Christianity is we don't have to wonder what right is, because the Bible is all about truth and right. And the things that God does tell us to do, he tells us to do for our own good. They're not just rules to make us do things that we don't want to do. They are rules to give us a better life. And so as we unpack that issue, I hope that you will take that perspective and that that will be encouraging to you. But as always, before we get to that Let's talk about what is going on. Well, this past week, the Washington Post decided to criticize Josh Hawley 
for talking about the absence of masculinity in our American culture. As someone who really prizes the biblical definition of men and women and really wants people to embrace those roles as God gave them, because I see them as divine expressions of God's creativity, I really resonated with this. So I decided to do a little investigation and figure out what exactly does Josh Howley believe that has these liberals so up in arms. So for all the women's empowerment talk that continues apace like it's 1973, the numbers are really clear. It's men in this country who are in deep trouble by every measure. A couple years ago, we did a series called Men in America, which explained exactly how men are falling behind in this country. We found that important at the time. It's even more important now. The numbers are even worse. Finally, a member of Congress noticed this and spoke to it forcefully. That was Senator Josh Hawley. He spoke at the National Conservatism Conference, and he pointed out something obvious, that masculinity is under attack in this country, and men are withering and dying as a result of it. That's not an overstatement. Anybody familiar with the social science can confirm that. So over at MSNBC, of course, they found this deeply offensive. They compared Josh Hawley, of course, to Vladimir Putin. Josh Hawley, with his trademark laser-like precision, has honed in on the real front-burner issue in America, masculinity in this country. I am certainly not shocked that he said something this wacky, because he said stuff like this before. It's a couple of dashes of political extremism from a very, very cynical, Stanford-educated United States senator. It's a dollop of the type of rhetoric that you may hear in Vladimir Putin's Russia, that you may hear in Viktor Orban's Hungry, a fusion of these masculine notions. At some point, we're going to take a closer forensic look at the personal lives of the three people you just saw on the screen. A lot of happy, well-balanced relationships, do you think? Probably not. Josh Hawley, by contrast, is the senator from Missouri about whom they were complaining. He joins us tonight. Senator, thanks so much for coming on. So you felt moved to defend masculinity. How come? Well, because it's in crisis. Men are in crisis, Tucker, as you pointed out. I mean, listen, we've got at least 16 million men in this country who are out of the labor force. They're not just unemployed. They're not even trying to work. And I'm talking about able-bodied men, prime-age men. We have an epidemic of fatherlessness in this country. And what's the left saying? The left saying that America is a systemically oppressive place and that men are to blame and that masculinity is to blame. You know, if you want to be a man, if you are assertive, if, if you're independent, if you display those characteristics that psychologists have associated with men for decades, then you're contributing to the oppressive place that is America. That just isn't true. And it's time that we call that out. And it's time that we say to young men in particular, we need you. We need you to be responsible. We need you to get a job. And you can make this country a better place by being who you were meant to be. And we should call men to that. God, that's, I mean, I, I can't imagine why anyone would be anything but grateful to hear that. Why do you think that triggers the moron so much? Well, because the left, they, they hate this country, but they also, they don't believe in gender. You know, I mean, they're, they're trying to do away with gender, uh, and they don't believe in manhood or womanhood. I mean, these are the same people who are trying to do away with women's sports, let's not forget, Tucker. Right. So this is a war on gender all the way around. And I think the idea of having independent men, and independent women for that matter, but independent men who would actually go to work and be responsible and contribute to their families and contribute to society, the left finds that scary because those are not the kind of people who will just be told to fall in line 
line by the government and do whatever the government says to do. And the left doesn't want that. They don't believe in manhood at all. They think it's inherently oppressive. We've got to call them out on these on these falsehoods, and they are false. And we've got to call men to responsibility. For, for all of our sakes, men and women need each other. If, if one group fails, everyone suffers. I mean, that's that's real. That's how we're made, exactly. unfortunately, maybe, but it's true. <laughs> Senator Hawley, I appreciate your coming on tonight and for the for the truth that you're telling about that. Thank you. Thank you. This is so spot on, and I am so glad that there is someone in a position of power like the United States Congress, the state of Missouri, that is willing to speak on these issues. Now, th- these are comments made by Senator Holly last year, but obviously this is something that the Washington Post still thinks is adversarial to them, and so they are continuing to criticize him for it. I don't need to belabor this point too much because you know it's a passion of mine and you know that I have spoken at length about these issues many times. But can we just, by way of review, think about the way the Bible lays out life? Okay, the Bible says that God made the man and placed him in the garden and told him to name all the animals. After all the animals are named, it says there was not found a helper for the man. And so God puts Adam to sleep. He takes out his rib. He makes Eve from the rib of man and gives her to him as a helpmeet. Now, this concept has been abused and misused over the years. There is no doubt whatever about that. You can go to any number of stories about how that has happened. But that does not negate it as scriptural truth. And we must not allow bad examples of manhood to erode manhood altogether. The reality is that the Bible tells a man to love his wife and to lay down his life for her. And the reason that we have this country and the freedoms that we have today is because men were willing to stand up and say enough is enough. We need to fight for the liberty of this country. And that is why we are here because we stand on the shoulders of men that went before us. And, you know, Abigail Adams was a great woman in history and she supported her husband in his efforts for the country wholeheartedly. But she was a great woman. So just because you are supporting a husband does not make you less than. And we need to get away from this in the church because we have allowed these kind of philosophies to erode the church and to convince the church that it's not good enough to be a wife and a mother. It's not good enough to be a helpmeet when in reality a helper, a helpmeet has a lot of power. And I wish that we would realize that when God created the roles of men and women, he wasn't doing something oppressive. He was doing something for the good of culture. I went back and listened to the speech that is referenced in the clip I just played from Tucker Carlson that Senator Holly gave 
at the conservatism conference last October. And I just want to play a short clip of that now. The result is fewer and fewer men working. And by the way, I don't mean the elderly or the disabled. I'm talking about prime-aged, able-bodied men. Since 1965, the number of adult men between the ages of 20 and 64 not working, not even looking for work, but completely and totally out of the labor force, has quintupled, going from 3 million in the middle 1960s to more than 16 million in 2015. And the less men work, the less they marry. Marriage rates are plummeting. And the age of first marriage continues to rise as men push commitment off further and further into the future. By 2010, a majority of men in this country between 25 and 34 had never married. And that trend has accelerated in the years since then. Fewer marriages means fewer fathers in the home. By 2020, over 18 million American children lived without a father present. If you're keeping track, that's more than a quarter of all children in America. And I probably don't need to remind you that an absent father is strongly correlated with increased childhood poverty, childhood depression, and poor academic performance. Now, I'm not here tonight to tell you that men are victims. The last thing that we need more of in the United States today is the victim mindset. Men who blame others, men who blame others for their problems and then slink away to do nothing or worse, who embrace violence or cruelty deserve rebuke. Responsibility is one of God's greatest gifts to mankind and men must be held responsible for their choices and their actions and for their lives. And while the left may celebrate this decline of men, I, for one, can't join them. And really, nobody should. The crisis of American men is a crisis for the American republic. It's not just that millions of men out of work slows our innovation and our economic growth. It's not just the billions of dollars in welfare payments these idle men cost the federal fisc year on year. It's not only the depression and the darkness that now shadow so many. It's that liberty requires virtue. And in particular, it requires the manly virtues. America needs good men. Again, Senator Hawley has it exactly right. Can we just talk about a couple different things that he brought up here? First of all, it blew my mind when he said that the number of able-bodied men who were not working has quadrupled in the last few years from something like 4 million to something like 16 million men. And I would like to just be able to call shenanigans on that stat, but I I think it is kind of accurate. I remember a situation from my own past where I had a female coworker who was a hard worker and she actually moved up from the telecenter where I worked at Right to Life of Michigan. And she got her, her boyfriend 
a job at the Right to Life of Michigan Telecenter where I was working. And at the time, I would have given anything to be able to work full time. I was not able to because of things related to disability payments and insurance and things like that. But I would have given anything for that opportunity. And yet he would work 16 to 20 hours a week, same as me. And he would run out of that workplace like he had just performed uh, extreme physical labor for a 16-hour workday. And I remember thinking about that and being like, that is really a slap in the face to everyone like me who wants to work hard and provide for others. If a man provide not for his own, he is worse than an infidel. And that is true. The Bible does not mess around when it says that. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, how are we going to improve? How are we going to make a difference? He talked about how the key to liberty is virtue. I was just talking to my brother this morning, as a matter of fact, I believe, on why the Democratic Republic still functions here in the United States. Even though it's struggling, it still functions. The reason it does is because it is based on a fixed moral standard. Whether people want to acknowledge it or not, it's based on Judeo-Christian values. That's what our Democratic Republic was based on. And that is why it has succeeded for almost 250 years. It's under attack. We need to fight for it, but it has succeeded. And I was talking to him, my brother, about how it didn't last in Iraq. And a big reason why this is is because they don't have the fixed moral standard that America was based on. So you try to put in a a similar government to America without the moral foundation of America, and it will fail. I mean, that's just the simple truth. We have America because 56 individuals were willing to sign on the line and say we pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor to this great country. That's why we have the America we have. And there's a lot more to his speech. I would definitely recommend that you go to my blog and and watch this video because he shares a, a lot more good stuff in this regard. But I am just um, super impressed and filled with hope that there are people like Josh Howley on the Senate floor, and I hope that he continues to stay strong and stand for moral values. That's why our topic today is so important. Because if you don't have an unchanging standard, everything is chaos. Gender doesn't matter anymore. Intent doesn't matter. You know, nothing matters today. And so nothing of consequence ever occurs because we are too afraid to act. And we must not be that way. Before we go on to our main segment, I want to share with you a clip detailing a little bit of the story of Tim Scott, the junior senator 
from South Carolina because he has a book coming out about his life and the adversities that he has overcome. Well, he went from a life of poverty raised by a single mother to becoming one of the U.S. Senate's most prominent rising stars. And now Senator Tim Scott is sharing his story in a brand new book, America, a Redemption Story. And I had the pleasure of going back home to South Carolina, and I got to spend the day with Senator Tim Scott for an exclusive look at his family's epic journey. We must focus on the promise of the American journey. I know that journey well. Thanks for being here, inviting us to South Carolina. It's good to be home and sit down with you. Thank you for coming home, number one. And I'm just coming to my high school. I this, know, this is so I much know. Fun. The home of the Warriors, Stahl High School. I love it. Look over there. Oh, my goodness gracious. That's a picture of Senator what. Tim Scott. What a blessing. What a blessing to walk in your old school and, and see your picture on the wall. I failed four subjects my freshman year, world geography and civics. I always laugh because civics is about politics. I know I'm not the only one in Congress who failed civics. My senior year, another pain and miserable experience. I fell asleep driving down Interstate 26. And you shouldn't have survived that car accident. I went through the windshield. And to, to, to come out that with just six weeks of missed football mm -hmm. and the rest of my life, has been better because of that tragedy, that's a blessing. You write in the book, this was your ticket to a better life, your way out and your way up. That was my dream. And I think it's a dream for so many young kids, especially those of us growing up in a single parent household and in poverty, is to let this pigskin be our deliverance out of poverty. And most importantly, buy a mama house. Senator, we're standing yes. in front of the house that you bought for your mom. Yes, absolutely. I love this house for that reason. To be honest with you, in 2007, uh, I was able to surprise my mother with the house. Well, let's go in. Can right, we see it? it? Please, let's. This is Scott. Can Hi. we just come in? Hi. Hi. How are you? Your house is beautiful. Congratulations. Did you know that he was going to do something big with his life when he was growing up? No. <laughs> I see your Bible is out here. Yes. Do you read this all the time? All the time. You do. This is a daily thing. Yeah, it looks like you've read a lot oh, of it. Oh, yes. That, that's beautiful. Oh, yes. This so is she's a... praying for you. Thank oh, yeah. yeah. Always praying. If your what Bible's worn out, you probably are not. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about your parents. Kind of sad to go back and think about it. Daddy was amazing. Um, I think he was, uh, to me, he was a very proud man. You would never know he couldn't read and write because of the way he carried himself. So, Senator, we're standing outside of the apartment complex that you lived in after y'all moved out of your grandparents' yes. house. Isn't it funny to come back and oh it looks God. a lot smaller than you remember it being? I'll tell you what, I thought this was like a 100-yard football right. field. It's like this big. Your father left. You were seven years old and yes. your parents were divorced. Your mom packed you up, packed your brother Ben up, Y'all got in the car, and you drove down south to your grandparents' house. Yes. Tell us about that experience. Leaving my father um, was really hard. I didn't want my family to break apart. I wanted still to keep them together. I, I still do. I, I did. You worship your father, uh, and you want him to be proud of you, and you want him to be happy with you, and you're willing to do whatever it takes. So there is another great story for you to think about. Tim Scott 
overcoming adversity and becoming a success. Today, in our culture, we tend to say that black people have no advantages and no opportunities. And I really like Tim Scott's story because he didn't make excuses. He didn't say, because I am black, because I am poor, I'm not going to make something of myself. Instead, he pulled himself up by his bootstraps and believed God would give him the strength to do the things that he needed to do. And as a result, he is a United States senator today. He has said on occasion that just a few generations ago, uh, his family were sharecroppers and before that slaves. And so there is a lot for him to rejoice in. And it kind of goes along with what we've been saying in the first two clips that I shared because he grew up largely without a father and yet he still overcame and became the success that he is today. This is the kind of man that we need in our society. Someone who will tell other people who are in hardship how to be successful and not make excuses because of the hardship. That's really, as a secondary thing, something that I have tried to do with speaking for him as well. I mean, I've detailed my struggles with employment and other things on this show, so I don't need to go into detail with them, but I just want to reiterate once again that my goal is always to find the purpose in it and to have God direct me so that I can be effective for him and to not make excuses as I did as a teenager. Because my teenage mindset was, if you had given me a healthy body, then I could serve you. And God said, that mindset is unacceptable. You need to serve me with your disability, not just wish it away. As we continue our series on the unique attributes of Christianity, we come to one that I think is foundational to the whole series and maybe the most important episode we have, and that is that Christianity offers us a fixed moral standard. And you can tell that Christianity is unique in this regard because everywhere I look, at least for a time, not so much right now, But for a while, it seemed like everywhere I looked, I was seeing coexist bumper stickers. And sadly, I was even seeing them on the bumpers of people that claim to be Christians. But the reality is that the nature of Christianity is that because of our fixed moral standard, we cannot, in a sense, coexist with other religions. Now, let me be quick to say that we are supposed to do all we can to live at peace with all men. So that does not mean that we can't coexist in culture. But Christianity, by its very nature, calls us to a high standard. And I like what I read not too long ago or heard about Christianity is that Christianity does not lower standards of morality so that we can get to God. 
Rather, Christianity is God lowering himself to our level, taking on the responsibility for our sins, and raising us up to a godly standard of holiness. And that is the difference between Christianity and the majority of world religions. Because the majority of world religions are us trying to get to God. And Christianity says, God wants you. God is coming to you and bringing you up. The the psalmist said, he set my feet on a rock. He removed me from the miry clay. Isn't that a wonderful thing for us to consider? I want to start out our conversation by sharing our quote of the day. Roy Moore said, When we forget God, we lose the only true basis for morality and ethics, and we are cast upon the shifting sands of moral relativism in which anything goes, including lying, cheating, and stealing. And I thought that was such a good quote to begin this discussion because that's really where we are at right now. I, I've used this analogy a couple times in recent past, but I think it's, it's good to bring it up here. A lot of times people say there is absolutely no absolute truth, which is in itself an absolute truth, so that's kind of funny. But to expand upon this idea... Let us consider this example. You may tell me that your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth and we should not encroach on each other's truth. But what if I walk up to you and I take your cell phone out of your pocket and you tell me, don't take my cell phone, that's mine, you can't have it, it's stealing. What if my response is, Well, that's your truth, but my truth is that I found this cell phone, and it's now mine. And after all, possession is nine-tenths of the law. Of course, you would say that's ridiculous, but in reality, that shoots down the idea of moral relativism. Because moral relativism basically only works until it affects you. That's the reality. Anybody that says they are a moral relativist, you just have to challenge them on something pertaining to themselves or their possessions, and they will lose their moral relativism very quickly. So as we look at this issue of a fixed moral standard, let's look at some aspects of that and why it is such an important thing and unique characteristic of the Christian life that we are now living And the first point that I want to bring out is that our fixed moral standard gives us a balanced view of ourselves. In Psalm 139.14 it says, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. So as I've said before on this podcast, in relation to pro-life issues, My value comes not in the fact that my parents wanted me, but my value comes from the fact that I was made in the image of Almighty God. Regardless of what else I might accomplish on this earth or whether anybody wanted me, my value is intrinsic because I was created by Almighty God. But the balance to that is 
what Paul said in Romans 7.18, For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. So in this passage, Paul is telling us that in himself there is nothing good. We do not have the capacity within ourselves to seek God to do the right things. So we need to balance our view of ourselves with, yes, I am valuable because I'm created by God, but I also know that apart from God, I am not capable of anything good because nothing good dwells in me. The next important aspect of our fixed moral standard is that it tells us that God's standard is perfection and that Jesus is the answer. Jesus said, Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And that is Matthew 5.48. So, God's standard is perfection. As I said earlier, God did not lower his standards in order to let us into heaven. Rather, he brought us a Savior who was able to reach the standards to die for us and then give us the Holy Spirit so that we would have the power to live up to his standard. And we see in Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. So lest we begin to think, well, I'm pretty good, I'm one of the righteous ones, we need to realize that naturally none of us are that. So what is the answer? We are told to be perfect, none of us are righteous, so what is the answer to this quandary? Well, that answer is found in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 19-21, where Paul writes, To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And again, that is 2 Corinthians 5, 19-21. Now, what you see here is that Christ had to reconcile us to himself. In Romans, it puts it this way, Well, we were yet without strength. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. There was nothing in us that made us worthy of being died for, and yet Jesus did it. And, of course, the ultimate truth here is that he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. So our sin for Christ's righteousness. So that is how we achieve the standard of Christ. The standard of perfection does not change, but the fulfillment of perfection is only found in the one perfect one, the one who knew no sin, Jesus Christ. The third aspect of this fixed moral standard is it tells us that freedom is an opportunity for service, not self-indulgence. 
And the first verse I have on that is, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Galatians 5.1 So Paul is talking to the Galatians, and he's saying, Don't let the Judaizers win. Don't let them tell you that you have to follow every law of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, because you cannot do it. Don't be entangled in a yoke of bondage that they even themselves can't do. I mean, Jesus even spoke of this when he said, you tell your followers, the people that you're supposed to be leading, to take upon them burdens that you yourselves can't even bear. So Paul is saying, stand fast in your liberty. Christ gave you liberty. Christ made you free. And then he expands on this a few verses later when he says in Galatians 5.13, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. So what I want to emphasize here is this idea that we are called to liberty, but our liberty is to be used to serve one another. And I think this applies uh, biblically and applies to our personal lives, but it also applies to our country. Because I think that the reason that we were founded and the reason that we pursued liberty was because we knew that we as a nation were personally responsible to see that that liberty was carried out. Someone once asked Benjamin Franklin, what have you given us? And he replied, a republic, if you can keep it. So his point was that it was the responsibility of each American citizen to maintain their liberty. And you maintain liberty by personal responsibility. And that's what God is telling us in Galatians 5.13. We don't use liberty for our own purposes. We use liberty to serve one another. And incidentally, when you serve others, There's something extremely fulfilling about that. Paul said it this way, let each esteem others better than themselves. I can guarantee you that's a better way to live life than so many are living it today. It tells us that God's standards don't change. This point may seem repetitive, but here we are. It's very important. God's standards don't change. It says in Psalm one nineteen eighty nine. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. The word of the Lord endures forever. Another verse, I think in Isaiah, says the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall last forever. It does not change. He said somewhere else, I am God, I change not. And then, of course, the famous but so meaningful passage in Hebrews chapter 13, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. So this is a challenge for us. When people call our views old-fashioned, we need to be able to articulate the fact that the God who gave us these views doesn't change. So by virtue of serving a God who does not change, then our views on these important issues should not change either. Very important for us to realize. 
it tells us that salvation is a free gift. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So, this fixed moral standard tells us the bad news, that we are not worthy for heaven and we never will be on our own. It tells us the good news that Jesus can make us worthy, and thus salvation is a free gift. There's no works that we can do to be good enough for heaven. None of us can. And if you were going to play the numbers game, just hypothetically, can anyone tell me how many good works they'd have to do to make sure that their good works outweigh their bad? I don't think it's possible for us to even know that, even if we were persuaded it was the right way to go. I'd much rather be judged on the basis of Christ's definite righteousness than my attempt to be righteous. And then Revelation twenty two seventeen, And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will take of the water of life freely. And again, that's Revelation twenty two seventeen. So God is calling to you. If you do not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ, he is saying, take of the water of life freely. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so I hope that if you have not yet trusted Christ, that today will be the day of your salvation. Because then all of these lessons that I try to teach on a weekly basis here on Speaking for Him will come way more crystal clear to you. The Bible says that the cross is foolishness to them that perish, but to those who believe it is the power of God. It's important for us to be plugged into the power source in order to have power. Because remember, we said earlier, there is nothing in our flesh as human beings that's capable of doing these good things that God has for us to do. But if we are saved by grace through faith, the Bible says that we are his workmanship and he has work for each of us to do. Well, I hope this encourages you today. That's about all I have time for. Please encourage your family and friends to listen to this show. And if you have not yet left a rating or review on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to this show, please do so. It really does encourage me and helps other people find the content. I hope that you have a wonderful week and that you keep serving the best of masters. Hello, Andrew Gomison here. As we look to our 10th anniversary coming up in nine weeks, I wanted to dig into the vault of the Speaking For Him podcast and share with you some memories. So this first week's clip 
comes from episode nine of the podcast and was part of our very first Christmas celebration. Enjoy, and thank you for supporting Speaking for Him. And we're going to get started by going to Adam for some historical facts about Christmas. I do. I have some right here in my hand. You know, uh, these are very interesting because you just you, you never really really think about these. That, that's what I like about. So here we go. For instance, in the Middle Ages, so we're going back to the 15th, 16th century, Christmas celebrations were rowdy and crazy, a lot like today's Mardi Gras parties. <laughs> That'd be kind of crazy to think of how that is with Christmas, but that is that is how they how they used to be right there. Also, Andrew, did you know that Christmas was not always a federal holiday in the United States? It actually uh, was put into effect in June uh, June of eighteen seventy, June twenty sixth, eighteen seventy. Now, I always thought it was a national holiday pretty much since the states were created, but I, I guess not. I, I guess not. I think uh, sometimes our our traditions just grow into the national holidays. It's kind of the same way with Thanksgiving, which we talked about earlier this year. So That's very true. All right, here's the next one here. Andrew, i got to ask you real quick. Do you like eggnog? I do like eggnog. Do you? Um, I always have the non-alcoholic variety. Just to put <laughs> that out there and make that very clear. Yeah. <laughs> very good. Well, uh, you know, the first glass of eggnog was actually made in the United States, and it was consumed... In Captain John Smith's 1607 Jamestown, uh, Jamestown settlement, and I'm not exactly sure how it was made. I don't know if like they dropped accidentally dropped an egg in milk, and they're like, "Hey, here's a Christmas drink or something." But uh, never been a big fan of that myself. But in case you're curious, that is when it started. Salvation Army, that's a big thing around this time of year. They have the uh, people out there ringing the bells and, and the pots for donations. The Salvation Army has been sending Santa Claus clad donation collectors into the streets since the 1890s. So they've been doing this for 120 years plus. So that that's pretty cool. It is pretty cool, and they and they do good work uh, for the Salvation Army, helping out a lot of people. So if you do get the opportunity to donate to the Salvation Army this year, I would wholeheartedly encourage a donation. There you go. Two more for you here. Rudolph, the most famous reindeer of all, was the product of Robert L. May's imagination in 1939. So Rudolph, the whole thing started back in the 1930s. The copywriter wrote a poem about the reindeer to help lure customers into the Montgomery Ward Department store. So it actually was kind of started as an advertisement, if you think about it. That's, that's really interesting. I know when I heard that, I was very surprised because uh, Rudolph is at least as far as my generation and I think the generation directly preceding it, Rudolph's pretty much been a staple of the Christmas season. So to think that it came into being in the 1930s and wasn't just always a part of the legend of Santa is kind of surprising. But that's what you find when you go digging for these historical facts. Uh, Sometimes they surprise you, and that's part of the exciting uh journey that we go on when we do these podcasts i really enjoy it it is yeah it is really cool before 1939 it was known as a lighthouse light now it's rudolph's nose so how about that and last one for you here the uh, rockefeller center christmas tree you ever watch that andrew the lighting of it yeah it's a pr- they usually have a really big tree they do i know the biggest one i think was close to 100 feet tall absolutely amazing but construction workers started the rockefeller center christmas tree tradition all the way back in 19. 19- 31. So that was the first year of that. I would imagine that it had something to do with trying to help people cope with the Great Depression. That's kind of that my be. 
personal commentary. I don't have any facts to back it up, but I would imagine that those things coinciding was probably not pure coincidence. That's probably very true. There you go. Some interesting facts about Christmas. You go out and amaze your friends and family now. And if you ever go on Jeopardy, it could come in handy. (laughs) Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at speakingforhim. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review. 